0: (laughs) Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer... Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Lord? We ask for you to be glorified as we worship you, moving from worshiping you in song to now worshiping you with our mind and our affections. Lord, I pray that as we hear from these particular words from your sacred scripture, that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, only you can do that because only you know where every single person's heart and mind is right now and what they need to hear tonight so that they might walk out of here knowing you better and loving you more than they did when they came in. Fill us with your spirit that we might both understand your word and it become a fire within us, Lord. May we burn with your truth. May we, like Jeremiah say, ah, it burns within our bones. It is so powerful to us. So teach us, lead us, and guide us this evening, Lord. In your name, amen. Every once in a while, I get that call hey, we need you to come and preach. This morning that happened at like 9, 10, 15, I was still asleep, so I'm not exactly sure what time, but one of the pastors up in paradise had died this morning at 8.30. They needed somebody to come and fill the pulpit right then. And so I got the call, jumped in the shower, put on my clothes, raced on up there, And as I was driving up there, the thoughts of this particular text were in my mind. And I had a thought to preach this text. The Lord had other ideas, and when I got there, I was led in a different direction. But as I was thinking about it, one of the things that struck me and arrested my attention as I was driving up to paradise and praying and thinking about this text is, this is the message that you need if you're going to die. And you're all going to (laughs) die. And I'm going to die. And it would not be wrong, I think, for us to just camp here and sit in these verses for the rest of our lives. Now, God has given us much more revelation than this. But it definitely is striking to me. Of course, it's providential that we find ourselves here, and especially I find myself here when we come to a text like this. Because the whole of life is bound up in your need for God. That's your life. That's all of our lives. Everybody's life we come in contact with out there, and everybody in here, and everybody who might listen to this, your need is for God. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You remember there in that upper room in John chapter 14 where, where Jesus, he's talking to his disciples. And, and they're confused about what he's talking about. He's referring to the cross. They think he's going on a trip or something. And so the disciples say, Philip specifically, where are you going, Jesus. If you show us the way, we can follow you along on the trip. And Jesus said, No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here we have, as it were, a technical breaking down of what that looks like. How do you get to the Father through Jesus Christ? Here there's four things. This text tells us that there's four things that Christ did so that you can get into his heaven. Now, these four things you can't do on your own. These four things God doesn't owe you. These four things you can't presume upon. These four things... God did through Jesus Christ because this is what was required for your salvation. And if this does not apply to you, then you are not going to get into his heaven unless something radically changes. And beloved, this is the message that we go out and we tell people. This is what we need to tell people that God has required of you Faith in him and faith in especially this that we're about to look at here. So four things. If you're jotting notes, there are four things here that Christ did. Number one, Christ appeared as the high priest. Number two, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Number three, Christ secured eternal redemption. And number four, Christ purified your conscience. I love it when the text breaks up like this. And I especially love it when I come to that on my own and didn't find it in some commentary somewhere or something. It's like, ooh, goody, goody, goody. (laughs) But it breaks up like this so nicely. And one of the most important things I want you all to see is that in this entirety of the text... There's nothing you do until the very, very end and that's as a response to what God did and there you serve the living God. So if you're looking for some practical points in order for you to do certain things, you're not going to find it here. What you're going to find is Jesus and him alone. Jesus exalted and lifted up. Jesus needs to be the object of your love and your affection and your focus Pardon me, the focus of your faith. First of all, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Christ appeared. When he came and came on the scene, the very first words we have recorded of Jesus is in Matthew chapter 4. And he says there, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first words we have of him in his public ministry is a call to repentance. A call to come to him. A call to turn from your ways and come to him. Why would he do that? That seems like an odd way to start, right? Now we don't ever start our communications with other people. Hey Brian, how you doing? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Right? Not only is that a clunky way to start a conversation, but it's a sure way to end all future conversations with that person as well. Repent. But Jesus could come and he could say those words because he was something unique and something different than anybody else who'd come before. Namely, he is a high priest. Now, we have already looked at the fact that he's the high priest, that he's after the order of Melchizedek, he's not after the tribe of Levi or the Aaronic priesthood, or, you know, that whole Old Testament priestly system. Jesus ain't like that. Jesus is a different kind of high priest because he came once for all. The old covenant, the high priests, had to keep being born, living, because they died. Then a new one's born, lives, and died. And the implication there was is their work is never done. It just keeps going on and on and on and on. And it never justifies anybody. It never saved anybody. We'll get to that here in verse 13. It never accomplished the goal. And so Jesus came as a unique and a different kind of high priest because he came... Once and for all. And I'm getting ahead of myself, I understand. But look at what it says. He came of good things that have come. You see, the once for all that we're about to get to has to do with Christ bringing things that the old covenant couldn't bring. Namely, eternal things. Now, in the old covenant... You'd bring a goat. You'd bring it on up to the altar. You know the routine, right? Kill it. Well, confess your sins on it. Kill it. Lay it up on the altar. Burn the thing up. And the symbolism is that your sins have been atoned for in the burning of this animal, right? That's the symbolism of it. But you had to do it over and over and over. And you were never secure in that eternal redemption. You were never secure in your salvation. There was always a... Well, I just left my sacrifice and I checked a girl out. Or I just left the sacrifice and I decided not to give some money. Or I, deci- or, or, or I coveted. Or, or I saw another idol and I, you know, there's all kinds, 10,000 kind of things you can do. So you never have assurance. Christ brings a good thing. And the good thing you notice here has come. Things that belong to salvation. Now there's a now and a not yet about salvation. You know those words? Does that make sense at all? Your salvation. I'm saved now, right now. I'm saved. If I were to if I were to drop dead and Brian now has to come up and finish the sermon, which you can, I got my notes here. <laughs> If I were to drop dead, you should do that, by the way. Don't call 911. Just move me over there and finish the sermon, okay? Not that it's that good, but, you know, I'm there. (laughs) Might as well finish the sermon. But I am saved right now. I have that confidence. I have that assurance. However, you guys all know me well enough that you know that I still sin. So there's a sense, a very real practical sense, that although I am saved, I still need saving, right? There's still a part of me that needs to have that salvation worked out, right? Paul says in the book of Philippians that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and he's not saying there you're not saved, but he's saying that that salvation will work out in your life and you need to practice holiness. You need to pursue righteousness. And when you fail, you fail and you fall back on the grace that God has given you in salvation. Right? So you never fall all the way down, you never permanently fall away. You fall back and he holds you up and moves you forward. And then you fall again, but he holds you and he moves you forward. You following me? There's a now and a not yet to my salvation. My friend who died this morning, it's all now. (laughs) Right? Pastor Dave is now saved in every sense of the word. He is before the very face of God, beholding Christ's glory. He has been embraced by the Lord himself and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's been set before you, right? For us, though, there's a now and a not yet. These good things have come. We have redemption. We have salvation. We have assurance. The time of reformation has come, right? Remember the very last verse of, last. look at there at the very end of verse 10. Deal only with food and drinks, various regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Until the time... Where the Lord brings that reformation in. And that's what happened when Christ came in as the high priest. He came once and for all, performed his priestly duty for you in the face of God. So that you might have eternal redemption now that will be reserved for you in eternity. So now you have an assurance and as you walk this life of Christ, you don't fall away from him. No, you work more and more out your salvation and you're going to fall. And that's okay, grace. God is a God of grace. He never will leave you and never will forsake you. But the reason why he can be such a, such a great high priest is because he, look what it says there. Through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, Right? He did not go into the earthly temple. We have no record of him ever going inside the temple. He went in the courts, right? Lots of times. He did lots of teaching there. Remember, even as a little kid, he went in the courts and they were confounded. I like that word. Confounded at the things that he knew and understood, even being a little kid. But he never went in the temple because he wasn't a Levitical priest. He had no place there. But his place was greater because his tent, his tabernacle, his place of offering was the one that was in heaven, not of this creation. Which brings us to our second point, is that Christ first appeared as great high priest, second he entered once for all into the holy places. Now we remember from our study of the high priest a few weeks ago that they would go in yearly, yearly. Right on that Day of Atonement. You can pull up your calendar today and you'll still see Yom Kippur. You'll see it on your calendar. The Day of Atonement. And what that day was, the day where God promised that if, as the high priest would come up and offer a sacrifice for his own sins and then offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people and take that offering, that blood, and go all the way into the Holy Holies. Remember last week we talked about that? He'd go all the way in there and offer that blood there on the mercy seat. It would symbolize to all the people that God had forgiven their sins, but he had to do it every single year. Again, it never ended. It was continuous. It was something that needed to happen, but Christ... Only entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't have to do it over and over again. This is the radical nature of the new covenant. Because the old covenant was a constant work. And there are a million churches still set up like the old covenant. Where you have to constantly be working. You never have assurance of your salvation. You are always questioning and wondering and maybe doing some other... Just us here, right? How many of you have had plenty of experiences in your life where something wrong has happened and you have equated it with something bad you did the other day? All the time, right? Still, I know, I'm pretty confident I'm, I know my Bible well enough that I shouldn't do that, but I still do. <laughs> I still do all the time because that is our default, right? That is what we have within us that as humans and as partially sanctified humans, we default to works. One of the things that the Old Covenant did is all of those works showed you your inability to accomplish the very thing you were working. So it was a cycle of failure. Fail, fail, fail. Fail, fail, fail. Fail, fail, fail. Constantly failing. Never able to live up. So the great hope, the eternal hope was that one would come, something would happen that would finalize all of these works so that they didn't need to continue ad nauseum into eternity. And that's what Christ did. So now, I have to repent when I do that thing. Because you see what I'm doing when I say, oh, something bad happened and I equate it with something I did... I am doubting the promises of God because He promised me that He wouldn't leave me or forsake me. He would promise me that I don't need to live under superstition anymore. Now, could it be that I actually did something wrong? Yeah, but usually you know that, right? (laughs) I'm talking about when you get a flat tire and you think, oh, it must have been God's punishing me for something I did over there. No, no, no. It's not the way He works. Yes, this means he'll bring his guilt, he'll bring it to you, and you turn and repent. But the superstition stuff, that's old covenant, that's our default. Because Christ entered into the holy places not by means of the bulls, the goats, the rituals, but he entered by means of his own blood. I've heard it said that one drop from Emmanuel's veins is enough to redeem all of mankind. When Christ sacrificed himself there upon the cross and he willingly died and he willingly bore the wrath of God in our place, what I want you to understand right here is it's not just purely talking about his body that was broken right we have a tendency to think that Jesus being beat up so bad and we feel emotionally like I heard a study one time this medical doctor he comes in and he got the charts and the graphs and the thing and he for the next 40 minutes talks medically about what the crucifixion would have done to Jesus's body and at the end of it He ends with this saying where, you know, Jesus, all the physical things that he went through would have been such a strain on his body that his heart might have actually ruptured if he had been up there much longer. And of course, you know, it's died of a broken heart. Oh, right? And that pulls at your heartstrings, you know, kind of thing. But that's not what saved us. What saved us is that Christ bore the wrath of God in my place that I deserve for my sins. And his broken body and his shed blood is pointing towards the fact that that's what I deserve for my sins. He bore the wrath that I deserve in my place. He entered once and for all by means of his own blood. Thirdly, he secured an eternal redemption. In doing this, He secured an eternal redemption. Now real quick, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the spirit, how much more will the blood of Christ? So, Christ did what all of those animals could never do. Look at a few passages with me, will you? Let's start in, boy, there's so many. (laughs) Let's start in Mark. Mark 10. Verse 42, in the middle of the verse, it says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came not to be served, which... We all understand he has every right to be served. But he gave that up. That's one of the things that he willingly set aside when he took on human flesh. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to ransom people for himself. He secured eternal redemption. Now most of the time I've heard it said before, and I can't remember who can or I'd give him credit but oftentimes we think what's happening here is Jesus Christ died and he needed to secure our redemption and ransom us from Satan we're by nature children of wrath we're Satan's minions I guess I don't know we're his and so Christ came and redeemed us from Satan but that is not redemption Christ came and redeemed us, ransomed us from God. Beloved, Christ came to save you from God. You were under God's judgment. You were under his wrath. You have deserved his hell. He justly owes you nothing except judgment for your sin. And so God sent Christ... To redeem you and save you from himself, from his own wrath, from his own judgment. He ransomed you from God so that you would be God's forever. You following? He ransomed you from God's judgment so that you would be God's child He ransomed you from God's wrath so that you would be an object of his affection and grace. Christ saved you not from Satan, but from God. That's eternal redemption. Because if Christ actually did what I'm saying here, who's left to judge you? If Christ in his death bore your sins, each specific sin, in your place and atoned for it all, then what else stands against you? That's an eternal redemption in our passage. That is Christ ransoming you. If Christ ransomed you in such a way, who else could come along and ransom you back after Christ's perfect sacrifice? Of course, the answer is nothing. How about Romans chapter 3? Romans 3, let's start in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law speaks, right, the old covenant, the contrast that we're seeing here in Hebrews, whatever the law speaks, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's pretty comprehensive. Every mouth stopped, the whole world accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But that's an exciting word. Because I don't want to be under the wrath of God. I don't want to be held accountable. I want to be justified. I don't want my mouth to be stopped and the whole world accountable before. I don't want that. But God, the righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's a lot of words there. Let me break a few of them down. First of all, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God's glory is the standard we don't measure up. The only way of justification, the only way to be right before God, is, is if it's a gift. His grace has to be gifted to us. And that grace is available through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, remember, he is the one who is going to judge us for our sins, and in order to save us from that own wrath that he's going to pour out, he put forward something else, namely Jesus Christ, as a propitiation. That means sacrifice. All right? It's more technical than that, but that's all we need right now. Because you see in our passage here, the contrast is the sacrifice of bulls and goats and a heifer and all that stuff, it only purified you in your flesh for a short time. But Christ's sacrifice purified you forever for all who would believe in him. So if God declared you to be under his wrath, And then God put forward his son as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for your sins. So that you would no longer be on this category, under this wrath of God. But brought under his salvation, again, who will separate you from that kind of love? If Christ's sacrifice was for you, then it's eternal, it's absolutely secure. God did it, who can undo it? I could go on. I have plenty of other verses here. If you want to see them, you could ask me after. Well, you know, You could look on Instagram because I took a picture of it. So you can look up a few of these other ones. So first of all, Christ appeared as a high priest. Second of all, he entered into the holy place. Third of all, he secured eternal redemption. And fourth of all, to purify our conscience. Look back at the end of verse 13 that the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, understand the implication there. The implication is that your conscience isn't purified, right? Because that's what he's contrasting there, your flesh with your conscience. So the old covenant could only purify your flesh, and only that for a time, it could never purify your conscience, which is what you need, which is what I need. Because my conscience is still seared. My conscience is still not right before the Lord, even though my flesh. So, what does this look like? What does somebody who outwardly looks pure look like versus somebody who is inwardly pure? Look at Luke chapter 39. Pardon me. <laughs> Luke 11. What kind of Bible do you have, Pat, that has 39 chapters in Luke? Am I the only one that thought that? Luke chapter 11. Verse 37, let's start there. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked to dine with him, so he went and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Huh. Even Fozzie Bear washes his hands before he sits down and eats. I saw that in the Muppet Show. Jesus doesn't even do it. The nerve of him. So the Lord said to him, verse 39, now you Pharisee, You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything will be clean for you. (laughs) woe to you Pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb but you neglect justice and the love of God these you ought to have done without neglecting the others woe to you Pharisees you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, Rabbi, oh, oh, you, oh, you did such a good sermon. Oh, it's so good. Oh, you pray so well. Will you pray for me? Oh, woe to you. You are like an unmarked grave and people walk all over them without even knowing it. This is what it looks like Jesus uses these metaphors, uses this symbolism to show that outwardly this is what purification of the flesh looks like really good on the outside. I look like I have it all together but inside he says greed and wickedness. I don't love the Lord and his justice and I am like someone who's dead like an unmarked grave. Looks very nice on the surface but you walk right over the top and you don't even realize Death is underneath you. One of the teachers answered and said, pardon me, one of the lawyers said, teacher, um, in saying this, you're insulting us also. (laughs) Best to keep your mouth shut right there. He said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens. And it's hard to bear. And yet you yourselves, you don't even touch the burdens, not even with one of your fingers. Again, this is what it looks like. To be purified on the outside but not within is heaping, heaping, heaping. Deflecting attention away from myself and back on you. What is outward, this is what the following of the law looks like without the inward change. And beloved, I never want us to be a church like that. I want to take Luke chapter 11, I want to take Matthew chapter 23 to heart. And I'm going to be honest, especially as a pastor, I could so easily fall into the same trap that they're doing. I have to be very careful and judicious. I have to be wise. But most importantly, I need to be the one who's resting in God's grace and in his mercy. I need to have my interior cleansed and that only comes through him. And you know what, to be perfectly honest, a lot of times people who are the most messy on the outside, maybe they're the ones who are most spiritual on the inside. And God's doing the work in there. There are a lot of people who look really good outwardly. But look what Christ's blood and his sacrifice did. It purifies your conscience. You see, it's inward. You still might be messy on the outside, but inwardly my conscience is clear. People can accuse me and have of a lot of things But I know my conscience. I remember one particular thing we had happened and somebody accused me of something kind of serious and I was able to say in the middle of that, you know, my conscience is clear. I'm quick to repent. And if there was truth to that there, I would be right on it and repenting. But my conscience is clear. This is what Christ did. And he can do this because look it, I love the Trinitarian language here. And I'm going to be honest, I almost just saved this last verse for next week. And just did the one verse. But I'm not going to. But this is so good and rich to me. That the blood of Christ. Through the eternal spirit. Offered himself without blemish to God. Your salvation. Your redemption is Trinitarian. Meaning. This is the power of God invested in you and in saving you. And I in no way say that to exalt you and puff you up. I say that to exalt God and glorify Him because He is the one who's done all the work. This entire passage here is Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus did this for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus secured this for you. He came on your behalf, He's the high priest. He shed his blood. He secured it. He offered himself. He did it before the face of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, all for you, so that now you have been cleansed from all of your old dead works. And only then do we come to the very end where he says, to serve the living God. You see, beloved, Jesus is everything. And we dare not turn this text upside down and start with service and serve, 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 serve. And oh yeah, Jesus did this. Because that implies, that communicates, that teaches the wrong thing. What it teaches is that you need to do in order to get. And instead what the truth of the, not only this passage teaches us, but all of scriptures is we get and we receive and we are basked in the grace of God. And in response to that, do we go out and do we serve? That's the heart and that's the attitude. This is the perspective by which I can go rightly serve because I know my place as a saved sinner, and I can go forward with understanding and grace. I can go forward with humility and care and compassion because of all that Christ has done for me that I didn't deserve. I'm not owed anything, and so when I go out to talk to people, I can talk to them on that same level, saying, I'm a guilty sinner just like you, but doggone it, Jesus is awesome. He is the best of all beings. Jesus is just amazing. I wish there was another language with just superlatives that I could learn so I could fling them out there just talking about Jesus. Because amazing and terrific and awesome and wonderful and all those things we use for so many other inferior things. And the category of Christ is just so vast and so amazing But we don't have that. So instead we sing wonderful, wonderful songs with our arms up and eyes closed, singing praises to the Lord. We come and we hear about Jesus. We come to the Lord's table and we eat. Do you see why? We do this with all of our senses because we need to be completely consumed with Jesus. Because he's that worthy of a great savior as our high Priest. So, Lord, we love you because, like this is quite clear, you first loved us. Lord, you loved to save sinners in such a way that you ordained Christ to be our high priest so that he would enter before us and secure eternal redemption for us so that we might have purified consciences, Lord. Lord, this is a crazy, amazing truth. And I pray that we would never tire of hearing about your eternal redemption for our souls. Lord, I do pray that hearing about these truths would motivate us to go and to love and to serve others, Lord, in your name. For your glory. Not earning a stinking thing but just simply loving you and trying to show you off to other people, Lord. Thank you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.